I recognize I'm taking a bit of a risk this morning because the uh, text that I've chosen for today's message is from Revelation. And Revelation, of course, is one of the most challenging books uh, to interpret and understand in all of Scripture. There is a wide variety of interpretations, disagreements about the meaning, the timetable uh, of the consummation of all things according to God's plan. If people that uh, read Revelation and they're premillennial, you got postmillennial, you got amillennial, you got panmillennial that just believe it's all going to pan out in the end and why worry about it. It's written in highly symbolic language, draws a lot on Old Testament imagery uh, from uh, the prophets, and that's one of the things that uh, creates the challenges in interpretation. And my text this morning is Revelation chapter 4. And even in chapter 4, there are uh, some uh, interpretive uh, challenges and disagreements. For example, is verse 1 a reference to the rapture or not? Who are these 24 elders? Who do they represent? What, if, what is it with these four bizarre-looking creatures that uh, are surrounding uh, the throne? I'm not going to talk about those things this morning. There are some interpretive principles, basic interpretive principles that uh, we can keep in mind. And one of them is very simply context, context, context. You want to read everything and try to interpret everything in the scripture from the context in which it is written. And another is what I call the principle of repetition. That if you find a theme phrases or words that are repeated numerous times throughout a passage, throughout uh, the, the book that you were written, and of course throughout all scripture, that repetition is there for a purpose. It's calling our attention to something that is very important that we need to understand and we need to uh, listen to. So as we read this this morning, and then as we begin to uh, dig into this passage, I want you to listen for the repetition in this chapter. Okay? Listen for the repetition as we read through chapter 4. There will be a quiz. Let's stand together as we read this passage. <clears throat> After this I looked. And behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow which had the appearance of of an emerald around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire 
which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there, were, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them, had six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him and who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they created and were created. Let's bow together for prayer. Father, we thank you for... Uh, your word that you have given to us. And we thank you for passages like this that give us a glimpse into the heavenly places. Father, our prayer this morning is, as we look at this passage, as we study it, talk about it this morning, we pray for the guidance of your Holy Spirit, that it will be your truth that is declared. We also pray that your Spirit will work each of our lives individually because Father with all the things that are going on in this world even the things that are going on in our lives right now some some things that only you know about we just need a greater revelation of you and that's what we pray that you will give us this morning as we gather before your throne as we bow in worship Father, speak to us when we leave here in just a very short time. May we leave knowing a little better, even a great deal better, what a great and glorious and powerful God you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, here's the quiz. Repetition. What did you hear repeated? In that, thr- that passage. Throne. Very good. Great. I was going to say that your prize is your pastor is going to buy you lunch. But you live with him, right? Okay. All right. The throne. The throne of God. Now, let me, let me give a little historical context here. As we dig into this passage. Of course, we come to Revelation, and and we think about Revelation, we immediately start to think about the end times. We think about eschatology, the study of the end times. And certainly that's valid because the Revelation is about the end time, the consummation of all things according to God's plan. But it's also helpful for us to understand that John has a very strong pastoral purpose in writing this revelation that he received from the Lord. John himself, if you go back to chapter 1, is in exile on the Isle of Patmos. And we read in chapter 1, verse 9, that he is there on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. 
he is in exile on the Isle of Patmos. And Patmos is an, an island in the Aegean Sea. He's in exile there because of his preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the word of Jesus Christ, and his testimony of Jesus Christ, testimony that Jesus is Lord. So Patmos was a place of exile. It was, if you will, a penal community. And even though it's an island in the Aegean Sea, it was not a Caribbean island. It was nothing like that at all. Patmos was basically just a rock out in the middle of the sea. So he is there being punished because of his faith and for his relationship with Jesus Christ and his proclamation of Jesus Christ. And he is writing to churches and his readers who themselves are experiencing persecution. They were being persecuted because they were followers of Jesus Christ. And this persecution wasn't just a matter of people were saying mean things to them or saying bad things about them. They were being persecuted to the point of it costing them their lives. You may have heard of the persecution that uh, Christians experienced in the first century. The, the Colosseum events where Christians would be thrown out to be attacked and mauled and eaten by wild animals. They would be wrapped up in animal skins and thrown out to be attacked and eaten by wild dogs, lions, tigers. Christians would be crucified for no other crime other than confessing that Jesus is Lord rather than surrendering and confessing that Caesar is Lord. They could not do that because Caesar was not Lord. Jesus was Lord. They were persecuted through imprisonment. They were ostracized. They experienced economic persecution. This was the environment. These were the people that John was writing to. And his pastoral purpose in writing Revelation was not just to describe how everything is going to end according to God's purposes, it was also written to encourage those believers who were experiencing persecution and that persecution that was growing and becoming stronger with each passing day. In chapters 3 and 4, we read the seven letters that John writes that goes to the seven churches. And it's a mixed bag of churches. Some doing pretty good. Some doing well. Some doing so-so. Some either or on the verge of becoming completely apostate. But one of the common messages that runs through each letter that he writes to these churches is a promise that the overcomer will be blessed. And then in chapter 4, there's an abrupt change in the scene. The scene shifts to heaven with a focus on the throne. Now some of the other matters that I brought up is verse 1 describing the, the rapture. Who are the 24 elders? What are these creatures these four creatures that surround the throne those are valid points to discuss but what we need to understand the main focus of the elders the creatures everything in this heavenly vision is on the throne 
and specifically the one who is on the throne. And the meaning for John's readers, the meaning for us today, for churches in various states of spiritual health facing growing persecution, God is on the throne. Nothing happens, nothing exists in the past, the present, or the future apart from God's intention. God is on the throne. Now we have a saying that says a picture is worth a thousand words. Oftentimes a thousand words cannot do justice to a picture. Put yourself in John's place for just a moment. How does a mortal describe in words the indescribable? This is John's task. Now, of course, we recognize that what John writes, what he records, is given to him by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to give us this glimpse behind the curtains, if you will, into heaven and to the very throne of God. And what we see is a throne. And the thoughts, the image that comes to mind of a throne is that of ruling authority, the sovereignty of the one who is seated on the throne. The throne is surrounded by a rainbow. And and biblically, that will cause us to immediately think about the rainbow following the, 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 uh, the flood. As Noah stepped off the ark and God put a rainbow in the sky, I promise I will never again destroy the earth in this manner. It was a symbol of God's promise to Noah. It was a covenantal sign. But it is also symbolic of God's encircling brilliance. I believe that uh, John is drawing on Ezekiel chapter 1 because we see a similar image there in Ezekiel's vision. This, this image of his transcendent glory emanating from the throne. There's thunder and lightning. Lightning is, is powerful. It is estimated that some lightning bolts will have up to a billion volts of electricity and travel at 200,000 miles an hour. And of course, we know the thunderclap that follows after uh, a, a lightning bolt. Thunderstorms that roll through Wichita Falls. How many times has your house shook at the sound of thunder? The thunder is so loud, so powerful. It, it shakes your home. Power that's emanating from the throne. John also tells us that before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. This mirror-like reflection that adds to the magnificence of the scene. Ann and I and our family spent eight years from 1991 to 1999 uh, pastoring a church in the Florida Keys. Florida Keys is a beautiful part uh, of God's creation. We were a little surprised when we went there to visit because I thought the the water around the Keys would be kind of like what we'd seen in the Gulf Coast. It was not. The water was crystal clear. There are places you could go out, you could see 30, 40 feet 
down to, uh, to the bottom. And there were days when the water would be as smooth as glass. Now, I grew up in West Texas, and I'm a firm believer there are not very many places in the world that have sunsets as beautiful as what we see, well, even in Texas, but particularly out in West Texas. Well, I found out there's a place that was equal, maybe, maybe even surpassed the sunsets I grew up seeing, and that was the keys, because on those evenings or, or those mornings with sunrise or, or sunset, when that water was as smooth as glass, you not only had the explosion of colors in the sky, it would be reflected off the waters. And there were times you could not tell where the horizon ended and the water began. It just blended together into one beautiful picture. And I've just tried to describe in words what is really indescribable. This power, this glory is emanating from the throne. And it's not only emanating above the throne, but is being reflected all around and beneath the throne. And this, this crystal clear sea of glass also tells us that the one on the throne sees and knows everything that is happening beneath him. Nothing is clouding his vision. Nothing is blocking his vision. There, there's no clouds that God needs to peek around. There are no corners that he needs to look around to try and see what's going on. God sees and knows everything that is happening, and he is on the throne. All of this is to depict for us the majesty, the power, the grandeur, of the scene that John is, is viewing, of the one who is on the throne. Now, we don't get a specific description of the one who is on the throne, but what we see is his glory, his power, his transcendence, his sovereignty, the omnipotent, omniscient God who is on the throne. John tells us about the 24 elders. Verse 4, he says, Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the throne were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their head. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumbling, peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. So we're introduced to the 24 elders. Some say the 24 elders represent the 12 sons of the 12 tribes of Jacob and the 12 disciples representing the, the church in totality. Some say it represents all of redeemed humanity. Others say that these 24 elders are angelic hosts who serve and adore God continually. There are the four creatures which if you're artistic and you take this description and you seek, you, you draw them out, you come up with some pretty bizarre-looking uh, creatures. Interpretations of these creatures are they represent all of the animate 
uh, creation, birds, uh, mankind, animals, or they're angelic beings who swiftly carry out God's will uh, with the, the, the numerous eyes, the wings that they have. Again, very similar to the description of the cherubim that um, Ezekiel had in his vision. But as I said, trying to come to understanding of what they represent is really not our purpose because the focus of everything in this chapter is where? It's on the throne and the one who is on the throne. This vision is meant to stir our imagination. It is meant to inspire awe and wonder and hope and comfort because God is on the throne and he is worthy and he's deserving of our worship. And it is because of his power and his grandeur we can trust him. It's because of his glory, this transcendent glory that is emanating from him and emanating from the throne that he is worthy of our worship. Because what are these 24 elders and these four creatures doing? They are worshiping the one who is on the throne. Look at what they, what they say. They never cease to say in verse 8, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. This is a common thing that you find in the scriptures, this, this thrice repetition of holy, particularly when applied, especially when applied to God. God is holy. And he's not just holy, he's holier. And he's not just holier, he is holiest. Holy, holier, holiest is the Lord God Almighty. The God in whom there is no shadow of change, the God in whom there is no stain of evil, the God who is far above all things, set apart from, infinitely pure, righteous in all of his ways, the God who will always do what is right and what is just, the God who is eternal, who was and is and is to come, the God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is the God who is seated on the throne. Look at their worship in verse 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Everything that is exists by the will of God. This universe, all of creation, is not a cosmetic accident. It's not the result of some evolutionary process where something came out of nothing and then over billions and billions of years we got to where we are today. All that is, including you and me, are created by God. We are here by God's design, by God's purpose. We are made in the image of God to honor Him and to worship Him and to give Him the glory that He deserves. Ultimately, to, to honor and glorify Him forever. You know, that's why we come to worship. That's why we have this time that, that we call worship. And hopefully you're not limiting your worship of the Lord to just one hour a week during the worship hour at church. 
but living in daily worship of God. The surroundings and the, trap, the trappings really, really don't matter. You look at, at this sanctuary that we've gathered in. You can compare it with sanctuaries of other churches around town. Some are more ornate. Some are, uh, are, are, uh, have, have more, more decoration, more, more images, if you will, to, to inspire worship. There are churches that are meeting in apartment complexes. There are churches that are meeting in warehouses. There are churches that are meeting in people's homes. Some churches have elaborate sound systems and light systems and smoke machines and, and, and everything to, to create a, a concert-like experience. Some churches have just a single piano that may be out of tune at that. There are believers that are meeting for worship on the Lord's day. They're meeting out under a tree in a field. Some churches are meeting in hiding because of the persecution that they face in the country in which they live. The surroundings and the trappings really are not what matter. Because when we come together for worship, we're coming before the throne of God. We're coming before a glorious, powerful, awesome God that is worthy of our worship. And if we can come before the Lord and before His throne in that kind of environment, whatever the surrounding trappings, and sit and do nothing as if Worship is just a trivial little thing. There is something wrong in our hearts and in our minds and in our approach to God. We are in the presence of the Almighty God. I heard one pastor say one time, the fact is, when we come to church, we ought to wear body armor and a crash helmet. Because it's a glorious, dangerous privilege that we have. The presence of the Almighty God. One who is able to save. One who is able to recreate the lost sinner who is dead in his trespasses and sin. Making that sinner alive again in Christ through the revelation of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the confession of Jesus Christ as Lord. We are presented here with a glorious image of our God, an image of power, glory, transcendence, knowledge, sovereignty, this is the God with whom we have to do. This is the God with whom we deal. This is the God who invites us into his presence. And what a wonderful invitation it is. And this is a God that surpasses what we oftentimes settle for in our own imagination about God. Anselm of Canterbury 
put forth what has become known as the ontological argument for God. And he basically said this, God was the singlest greatest thing imaginable. If we can conceive of one thing greater than all others, by definition, that thing must exist. So he's basically saying God is the, the greatest thing that we can imagine. And that single thing per Anselm is God. We're not left to our imagination, though. We have revelation. A revelation that God himself has given to us. You compare this and other biblical visions to the encounters to uh, contemporary revelations of God. To, to even to some of the visits to heaven that uh, have been popular uh, in recent years. I am, um, I as a rule am very careful about standing up and saying, well, you know, God said to me, I can really recount only one time in my life where I believe and I'm convinced that God spoke to me in what could even could be considered an audible voice and no one else around me heard it at that time and it had to do with my call to ministry it was so clear and unmistakable all I could do was say yes Lord but some people treat that as if it's a common a common thing and not just common that it happens all the time but common as in It's almost disrespectful. I heard one guy saying, I was driving down the street one day, and the Lord spoke to me and said, Dude! And I said, What's up, God? Hey, man! That kind of conversation. I, find, I personally find those troubling. You look at the scriptures. What's the reaction that you see? Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, John, when they have a vision, an encounter with the glory of God, they fall to their knees before the God with whom they are dealing, the God who has revealed himself to them. They are confronted with their sinfulness and their unworthiness. But God reveals himself to us for a purpose. And that purpose is to call us to himself. That we might experience his grace. If forgiveness is needed, he gives forgiveness like he did for Isaiah. If it's encouragement, like for Daniel living in exile, for John in exile on Patmos, he gives that encouragement. But if it's left to our imagination, we're always going to come up with something other than the God who is revealed to us in the scriptures. A few years ago, a book came out that accounted the visit to heaven by a young boy. And his description of his visit to heaven as the angels were singing, Jesus loves me. He, he recalls sitting on Jesus' lap, meeting John the Baptist and Gabriel, petting Jesus' rainbow-colored horse. Uh, Jesus was wearing a crown with a pink diamond. There was a prevalence of kids 
in heaven. Everyone had wings, just like the angels except Jesus. This young man was recognized by his great-grandfather, and he described God as really, really big. Now, visions like that are not outside the realm of possibility. Others have had similar visions, both believers and non-believers alike, and they all have similar elements. But if you look closely at those accounts of those heavenly visits, what's missing? It is this awesome, overwhelming, powerful holiness of God who rules over his creation and who redeems lost sinners. And do we really need testimonies like that to prove that heaven is real? Is the scripture testimony not sufficient for us? God himself gives us this revelation so that we know that he is the Lord God Almighty. He is sovereign. He is in control. He is running things and working things out according to his eternal purposes. This is a God that's not the man upstairs. He's not an indulgent grandpa. I read an article recently that more and more people are beginning to view God in exactly that way, as an indulgent grandpa. I am an indulgent grandpa. But I don't want my grandkids thinking that God is like me. He's not some distant, uninterested, impotent God. He is the God who is on the throne, sovereignly in control, ruling over his creation, working everything out according to his glorious and grand purposes. This is the God who is on the throne. C.S. Lewis said, we're in no position to draw up maps of God's psychology and prescribe limits to his interest. We would not do so even for a man we knew to be greater than ourselves. The doctrines that God is love and that he delights in men are positive doctrines, not limiting doctrines. He is not less than this. What more he may be, we do not know. We only know that he must be more than we can conceive. And what we do know about God, we know because he has revealed it to us. He has revealed himself to us. Look again at verse 10. This is the response of all those around the throne. The 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they are created and were created. The response, falling before God in worship. That image, an image like this, is given five more times throughout Revelation. We see it again in chapter 5. Chapter 7, chapter 11, chapter 19. That's why Revelation is 
been called not just uh, the revelation of the the end times but also one of the greatest worship books ever written because of the description of this worship that is occurring around the throne it is said that king george ii when he first heard the performance of handel's messiah rose when he heard the hallelujah chorus and he rose with his head bowed and by rising with his head bowed he indicated that that not he but jesus is the king of kings and lord of lords the messiah who reigns forever and ever and just that that great piece of music was enough to strike awe in his heart and remind him of really how insignificant he was even though king of england in comparison to the king who sits on the throne of heaven. The 24 elders cast their crowns before the throne, rendering the highest accolades in heaven and earth. They had received those crowns for being overcomers. Now they worship God because he alone lives and rules forever and ever. And they recognize that whatever they may have received, could only be given back to God in worship. God is on the throne. He rules eternally over his creation. No one, nothing can remove him off the throne. He's never going to be voted off. He will never be usurped. No Caesar. No political party, no angry atheist, not even you or I can ever remove God from the throne. He is on the throne. No matter what is happening, remember, John is writing while he's in exile, persecuted because of his faith. He is writing to readers who are being persecuted because of their faith. Even sometimes at the cost of their lives, suffering and death. No matter what is happening, God is on the throne. You get bad news, God is on the throne. Something disappointing comes into your life, God is on the throne. Illness strikes, pain becomes a part of your life. Good times, bad times, persecution, God is on the throne. It doesn't matter how the elections turn out. God is on the throne. And that will never change. We look for security in life. In a security, we want something that, that, that is constant that we can hold on to. When everything else is changing around us, when everything is in flux, when everything is in upheaval, upheaval we need something that we can hold on to we need some firm ground that we can stand on well this chapter gives us that firm ground whatever is happening god is on the throne there are some gospel tracts that use the illustration of a throne you're probably familiar with these come to a point where there's a, there's a chair that's the throne of your life and the choice comes down to either this 
there's one of two people on that throne. It is either yourself or it is Jesus. And of course, the point of the gospel tract is that salvation and confessing Jesus as Lord is you take yourself off the throne of your life. You put Jesus on that throne because Jesus is Lord. Who's on the throne of your life? Whatever the answer to that question may be, whether it's self or whether it's Jesus, when it comes right down to it, it still really doesn't matter because God is on the throne. And we will all stand before the throne of God. We will all give an account of our lives before the throne of God. The book of life will be opened before the throne of God. And your name will be checked. Is your name in the Lamb's book of life? If it is, it means salvation, eternal salvation. If it's not, eternal damnation, separated from the presence of God. Jesus is Lord. That is an eternal truth. And the day is coming when we will all recognize that truth. We will all confess and admit to that truth. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 1 that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now the good news is that confession today means salvation. Salvation for the one who confesses. If we confess with our mouths Jesus is Lord, believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, Scripture says you will be saved. And notice the emphasis, you will be saved. Confessing Jesus as Lord. Giving him your life. Surrendering to him as Lord and Savior. But when it's before the throne of God. At the consummation of all things. There will be those who will admit. They won't confess. But they will admit that Jesus is Lord. And at that time. It will be an admission. I have lived my life in error and that error has eternal consequences and that consequence is separation from the one who is on the throne so I ask you again God is on the throne is he on the throne of your life have you confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and been saved? Because that's the critical issue. That's the eternal question that we all must ask and deal with. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, again, revelations like this that you give to us. <coughs> Sometimes we need to reshift our focus to you, to your glory, your power, your authority, your sovereignty. Sometimes we need reminders. We get so caught up in the things happening in our lives. Some things that are good, 
some that are that are difficult, hard, even tragic. And we can forget and even question if you really are in control. Why are these things happening to us? Why are you letting them happen to us? And sometimes we even blame you for those things. But you've given us your word. You've given us a reminder. And this passage and so many others throughout your scriptures. You're a God who loves his children. You're a God who, are working for, who works for uh, salvation of lost sinners. And you are a God that's sovereign over everything that's happened. You're in control over everything that happens. Nothing happens, at the very least, without your permission. Because you are sovereign. Father, help us to look to you, the one who is on the throne. To not only worship you and give you the worship that you deserve. But to humble ourselves. And bow before you, confessing you as our God, your son Jesus, as the Lord and the Savior that we need and that you sent for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.